it's good to dismantle your own ideas. My goal is not to make fancy shows in gallery rooms. My goal is to change my world, to investigate what life is, to challenge my perceptions, to exercise freedom, to grow. That was Christina Robsdorf, and this is Nordic Portraits. Christina Robstoff is a multidisciplinary artist who has spent the better part of the last two decades building a highly successful international career. From large-scale collages incorporating materials like fabrics, cuttings, foil, wood, and newspaper, through to sculptures in bronze and concrete, she has been described as one of the most versatile artists of her generation. Her work is included in, amongst others, the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art New York and the Saatchi Gallery in London. And in 2017, she represented Denmark at the prestigious 57th Biennale in Venice. Christina, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you. Christina, I wanted to start by discussing the exhibition that you created for the Biennale in 2017, because I thought it was an obvious starting point. It was entitled Influenza, Theatre of Glowing Darkness. I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about how you went about approaching that exhibition and how you landed on the concept of darkness. Good question. Well, I lived for many, many years in Berlin. I've lived abroad from Denmark for almost 20 years. And at some point, I got really, really restless in Berlin. And somehow I had digested the art scene. I came into the art sort of on a side angle and a side note. And I was like completely new to anything. I was like eating the art scene for 15 years. And at some point, suddenly I was full. And I started to look around because my attention span got restless in the environment of the art. I've been attending so many openings and seen so many art shows. And and trust me, I really, really, really adore and like and appreciate and value the process of art, the creation. I had reached a point where I was like settled with the product of art or the art industry, so to speak. And an opportunity came open of moving to Denmark to take over my grandmother's old house. And I was like, let's try that. And it was a big move. It involved children and a big studio and a boyfriend and et cetera, et cetera. And it was like moving from this urban environment that I've been enrolled in for the previous 20 years to living on a field in Bumblefuck Jutland, where there's nothing. I mean, no art, no culture, no Vietnamese cafe. And I was like, wow, if I'm going to take this move, it's a radical change in my life. And it's a severe investment in something that I don't know, but I trust it to be an investment in my life. And I think I will grow through this because what I have behind, I know so well, and I sort of cannot grow in it anymore. It's like I've grown to the ceiling and I need a new roof or a new scale. In this decision, I was like, okay, if I'm going to take this decision as an investment in my next 20 years or next 40 years, I would not bring anything that is not productive. So I looked around in my environment and I saw 
my gallery connections, my friends, my situation. I was like, I would only bring to Denmark what can support my life or support my growth. And it sounds counterproductive, but <laughs> but I was like, I'm not going to have a problematic long-distance relationship. It's like I will have relationships brought along that can do me good and then can sort of like support whatever will come. So I decided to stop my galleries. I stopped my main gallery and I looked on the other two or three secondary galleries and I was like, oh, they might not have the same issue as a big gallery or as intense, but they had similarities. So, And at that point I was like, okay, I might just quit the galleries and allow myself to start on a scratch in, in order also, I guess, maybe also to test my artist life. I mean, am I an artist? Can I live without a gallery? Because at some point you get enrolled in a way of thinking or habitual matter and you think that this is your life and suddenly I was like, actually my life as an artist was really initially in order to be free and to be able to think freely and act freely and suddenly I'm enrolled in a market where I have to accommodate and where I have to please and where I have to fit in and there's always a little troll or a devil that tells you if you misdo you will be unaccepted and you will be unloved. And I was like, I have to get rid of this devil. So I was like, okay, I quit that. So completely naked with no connections. I mean, I brought a few friends with me. And your kids. And my kids and my husband, my boyfriend, and a lot of stuff and a lot of material and a lot of artworks. Um, the first four weeks was very, very hectic for various reasons. But every time I opened a moving box, one of these brown copper boxes, I had this intense word like capital letter word on my inner forehead saying influenza with sort of neon toxic letters. And so every time I open a cardboard box, it says influenza. And I was like, eh, that was really odd. But I was so busy and so hectic that I was like, I just let it be and said, I'll deal with that later. And after two weeks of being in Denmark opening boxes, I got this invitation for the Venice program, which was Interesting time because a few weeks before I was like left in nowhere land and suddenly I was sort of like I landed and I was in chaos and I got this invitation and I kept getting this influenza word for my inner eye. And I was like, hmm, I mean, I know my process. And I was like, those two things have something to do with each other. And I was like, I left it alone to develop as a couple next to each other while I was still unpacking and When I was ready, I took the words and brought it to my working desk, the Venice and the Influenza. And I was like, obviously, they have something to do to each other. And it's like I knew from knowing my process that the Influenza didn't have anything to do with the bodily disease. But obviously, Influenza is a weakness that we share. It's a communal weakness. It's a collective weakness. It's like I cannot have Influenza by myself. I must share it with you. And... I was like, wow, what is this about? In the beginning, I was like, hmm, that's maybe because we have so much light in our worlds. We have so many screens. We have so much social platforms that is like not real, that is virtual. And I myself are less engaged in all these virtual platforms because I get stressed. SMS and email and phone is enough for me. But I see it in my social group. I Hardly anyone calls me anymore to invite me for dinner. I always get a text message. And I'm like, why do you text me? And I'm like, oh, I don't want to disturb you. I'm like, please disturb me. <laughs> I mean, oh, but you're so busy. I'm like, yes, I'm always busy, but please disturb me. 
because then we can talk. And so I was like, maybe it has to do with sort of like a fear of grasping or an anxiety of physicality or being not really connected. And I was like, that's really interesting. So I walked down that trajectory until suddenly one day, as I was struck by the light, I was like, wow, this doesn't have anything to do with too much light. It has to do with too little darkness. Mm. And suddenly I could feel it. And it had something to do with my own life. And it has something to do with me. And I was like, wow, this is a really important issue for our world today. And so I allowed myself to spend half a year until it was November. And in between sort of like the summer and the deep fall, I sort of was trying to figure out what this darkness was about. And I was like, wow, in this very dynamic, expanding world, darkness is really not a product that we allow ourselves. I mean, first of all, we are super restless. I am one of them myself, very, very incapable of sitting down and sort of like absorbing, very uneasy with pain, very, very uneasy with death and things that disappear or vanish. It's like when I was in my own life taking a radical decision of saying goodbye to the galleries and in the early spring I was like from May I will not work anymore because I have to spend time packing the studio down and what happened was that from one day to the next everything stopped as somebody have like just turned off the energy that was incoming to the studio it's like there was no phone calls there were no emails there were no inquiries there was absolutely nothing and I still remember building the studio in the countryside standing on the field and talking to Charlie and looking and I was like, Charlie, it's really weird. From one day to the next, my working life just stopped. And we were like joking. He was like, oh, but then we make the studio into a potato farm. That's no problem. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's kind of funny, but it's also interesting. And then I was like, but on the other hand, I asked my life to stop because I needed time to move. So I was standing in this half-built house and I was like, I guess I have to start my life by October. And I have to tell that out loud so whoever stopped it can start it again. <laughs> and that's why when I got the invitation for Venice, it gave me the creeps. I mean, I was like, my hairs on my arm were sort of like goosing up. And I was like, shit, is that really how it works? And of course, that whole process was also allowing myself to walk into the darkness. It's like not knowing what would happen. Stopping the professional life that I actually on many respects, really loved and was my habitual professional life, but which also brought me frustration and unhappiness because I was enrolled in systems that I could not control. And I was like, I really enjoy working with other people, but sometimes working relationships also become like bad personal relationships. So suddenly I was trying to make a show for Venice that was about darkness, which is interesting because how do you make something about allowing to dissolve when you're making a physical form. I mean, artworks are forms. Mm. But really what I was interested in was the form before the form or exactly this feeling of letting go. But I was like, wow, we need to allow this transformation in order to grow to the next level. Suddenly I was like, wow, if somebody really can talk about this, it's really artists because when you work as an artist, you go to the studio every day the most important tool is really the trust. The trust that any thought that would occur or any sensibility has some kind of an urge to material itself into some kind of material matter that you can pass on to 
the world or to your friends or to the spectator. And the paradox is that the artists are using it every day and it's like a trustful tool, but it's like even though that we know it so well, it can be really difficult to apply to our own lives, you know, mm. because the idea of me being unemployed as an artist, of course, is like it makes you shit Greenpeace. <laughs> you know, it's like it's not fun to think about because what else should I be? I can't be a dentist. I have no education. I can only be an artist. So how can I give this darkness a form when it doesn't want to have a form? And how can it take shape when really I want to avoid the shapes? Because every time we see a shape, we get so happy because then we know what it is. But but I want to leave the spectator in this uneasiness. And I was like, hmm. So I made myself a dogma for the Danish pavilion that everything I could do, every approach was to revert, like inside out. Like if you would take a pullover and like just toss it over your head, but leave it from the inside out. The Danish pavilion is sort of like a two-house platform where you have an old classical house. And I decided to make this into a theater the theater would not be a physical or visual theater. It would be a theater of your inner mind. And really the theater would be your not knowing what to expect. Like the restlessness your body would feel, the insecurity, the uneasiness, the claustrophobia from being left in darkness, not really knowing what will happen or if something would occur or what would occur maybe. So that was one part. And the rest was sort of the environment in and around this building where I sort of like dislocated the center of the pavilion. So I left the pavilion open. I taught out everything you could possibly take out of a house, like windows and doors. And I deconstructed some walls and just let this beautiful Venice garden sort of like merge into the house and dislocated the center outside. Really not to leave the house as a ruin. That was quite important to me, but more like a dismantled structure that used to have value, but the values was replaced with new growth. So really, the old structure was really just sort of like a scaffold, a skeleton for new growth to sort of like leech onto. Yeah, so that was sort of an umbrella project. I curated a bunch of curators, so the artist curator curators, to via workshops over a year to enhance their own creative process instead of they should frame my process, I sort of pushed them out to a limit, to an extent where they had to showcase their own inner artistic process, because everyone knows that curators also have artistic ambitions, because they are sort of like, they paint just with artists and make structures. And I was curious to sort of like have a working group around for me to discuss, first of all, more <laughs> to make my own project more exciting, because I do appreciate working with people, but also to in a kind and funny way to make them as my experimenting rabbits into this darkness that is sort of very, it's a challenging exercise to move through this. So that were sort of like the fundamental ideas about the influence. And now today, of course, it's relevant in a different way because we do have an influenza situation and we are left with this loss of control and this uh, leeching onto an old structure where we have to navigate I mean, the structure have not disappeared, but it's there's a lot of dysfunctionality. It's like it shows a lot of dysfunctionalities in our society that suddenly, like a petri box, you can suddenly see what we are growing. And um, the project in Venice got a lot of hostility. Why so? Um, I can only guess. I think 
First of all, it's a really stupid idea to work with darkness in Venice because Venice is all about light. <laughs> and everyone wants to be seen in the light and be next to the light and have a little glimpse of light falling on them. So it's a paradox to insist on darkness in a place that is so full of transparent light and transparency. And I think that the subject matter was uncomfortable for many people. Of course, I've talked a lot about this the notion of darkness, and it's, it's a subject matter that's very, very difficult to get through to people. And when we hear darkness, we have a lot of like biblical canonizations of like the sin and the evil and, and our bad consciousness and guilt. And it's really not what I'm aiming at. I'm actually, on the contrary, interested in like flipping darkness and opening it up and sort of insisting the darkness is really the womb of creation. And in a way, I see the project as an extremely positive and life-enforcing project. And my aim is to try to at least open a discussion or put a vocabulary to the fact that unless we allow ourselves this darkness, we give away our freedom. And you see it quite clearly in our world today. It's like where we have the drones are flying around or we don't know if what is like being tapped on our phones or we don't know when we are alone in a room, really. We don't know what we can shop without somebody has interest in what we are shopping and for who and in which connection. And to me, it's like when we grew up, I can see you are slightly the same generation as I, when we grew up, transparency was really good. Mm -hmm. Transparency was a value and it was a democratic statement that we can see what's going on we know who has the power. We know how money and power is distributed. But today it's somewhat flipped that transparency can be very undemocratic because it's meant surveillance. It means that somebody's looking into our lives and our privacy. And I think we should just be very concerned or at least aware about without being too paranoid. So that's one thing. On the other hand, it's like the darkness is where we dream. And... Unless we close our eyes and imagine something that is not a part of this world, it's very difficult for us to move on into a different world or to create a different world or to create a different situation for ourselves. If we only look at the actual fact and the physicality of the world, this is where our attention is bind. And if we want to get a higher roof, so to speak, or a new orientation, we need to be able to dream things that is out of this world. And this you cannot do in the daylight. Because in the daylight, you are bound to things and objects. And in the darkness, you are bound to your imagination. And your imagination can lead much further. So in that way, it's like the whole sort of notion of darkness to me is really an emancipation project. Mm. And it's a human empowerment project. And it's like a reminder to us that we have so much strength as individuals. And even more so when we're together. So for me, it's like... I can talk about these things for hours. And still, after sort of an evening talk, people will come up to me and say, it's really funny, Christina, because you don't seem like a depressed person, but why do you keep talking about darkness? And I'm <laughs> like, you missed the point. <laughs> the light and the darkness are part of the same. You can't separate it like two sides of a coin. Mm. But if you only live in the light, or if you only insist being a part of the light, you get so exhausted that one day you will burn up. You see that. You see that also in my cultural field. It's like people, artists, musicians, poets that have so much resource and so much power and so much 
creativity when they're young, when we get older, and when we are like, we've been through success and enjoying success, we tend to lose grip with ourselves and we tend to lose this what nurtures our poetry from the beginning or this was nurtured our artworks in the beginning. This was nurtured our creativity. So for me, as a mid-age artist, it's really important and I'm very conscious to constantly re-nurturing myself. Like, make sure that I check out, make sure I don't get too high thoughts about myself, to make sure that I get humbled about life and wonder, to make sure that I try to read the books that I need to read and close my eyes when I need to close my eyes and to allow the fear and the frightenedness also about how our world is processing, but also about my own vulnerability in my own life and not always to cover with more doings. Mm. And I tell you, that's a task every day. It's really, really difficult and it's really, it requires great bravery. But I know that if I would continue with the things that I love the most, which is my creation and my freedom, this is a price I have to pay. So last year I decided to take a year off from exhibiting. And of course you go through all these like crazy spins in your own fucked up neurotic mind where you go like, oh, I can't stop exhibiting because then people will forget about me. And what if they forget about me and I will not be invited for another show and et cetera, et cetera. And on the other hand, the other brain half go like, yes, but you're so tired. It's like, you really need to read a book. You have not opened a book for months. And in the end, I was like, fuck, which kind of idiot told the arts environment or the art crowd that they should exhibit all the time you know that they should constantly make another exhibition in order not to be forgotten nobody can make another exhibition for 20 years 10 times a year in order not to be forgotten because at some point you would empty yourself out and you will just be a transparent image of yourself with no juice and just habitual behaviors and I was like I'm not that kind of artist because then I have no freedom and I have no creativity left and this is actually why I do what I'm doing. So I decided to take a year off, which was interesting. And a year has passed. And I feel that I'm only starting where I somehow thought I would have started a year ago. Mm. So this is the amount of time it takes to dewind. And it it's not so that I have not been making artworks or projects. Maybe I've made more artworks and more projects than before it just didn't have a focus and I allowed myself again to be a complete beginner and start different fields just because I didn't have assignment I had no expectations not even to myself and it's very rewarding to yourself and it's so rewarding that I don't know if I want to stop this pause <laughs> mm. but let's see <laughs> so do you feel that now going forward, you're approaching your art from a more healthy place personally? Um, I don't know if it has to do with health, but it has to do with nurture and need. Maybe that has also something to do with health, I don't know. But for me, as I said earlier, I'm by nature I'm restless. I need to work with this, I will do. But I'm at my best when I'm a beginner. It's like when I get good at something, I get bored and I get more restless and I get 
irritated with my own product because then I can calculate what comes out and then I sort of demolish it and start somewhere else. And this is what I'm good at. I'm really, really good at starting somewhere else because I have no pride per se. I don't have any expectations of me being a very famous artist, so therefore it's easy to demolish my identity to a certain extent. <laughs> Still working with the last 10%. Yeah. Um, but it's like, for sure, it's difficult when you have constant expectations hanging on you. If you wake up and you have to rush through the day because otherwise you cannot make what you have to do, sort of accomplish what you have to accomplish, it's very difficult to find these sort of offspring minutes where your mind can wander in surprising and new search areas. But it's like, if you really want to change, you really have to allow yourself to get on the jumping board and let yourself plop into the water, even though you don't know what you'll find at the bottom. Because that's when you figure out whether you're going to sink or whether you're going to float or whether you can swim or whether you can make water acrobatics. Mm. And I think that this exercise is really, really healthy. So if you ask about health, yes, it's probably much more healthy now. It wasn't unhealthy before. It was maybe just tired. Like you have sentences you would say about yourself or your past. It's like, oh, but my parents treated me like this, so therefore I'm like this. These habitual sentences also sneak into your practice. Like, oh, I'm this kind of artist. Oh, I don't, I'm not a painter because X, Y, and Z. It's like, oh, I only make conceptual art. And then you try to bend what is conceptual. When your concepts start to fade out, you stretch your ideas of conceptual <laughs> art. Instead of just saying, fuck it, I'm just going to allow myself to start all over. Maybe I'm an abstract painter. Maybe I'm a haiku poet. And I, I think that it's like, it's good to dismantle your own ideas. That's a paradox. You lower the ambitions to higher the ambition, you know, because my goal is not to make fancy shows in gallery rooms. It's okay to do a few or once a year or now and then, but that's not my goal. My goal is to change my world, to investigate what life is, to challenge my perceptions, to exercise freedom, to have some interesting talks or subjects that I can spin with my peers to grow. That's really what I want. I want to grow constantly. I want to be a better version of myself tomorrow. And I think art is a very generous media to mediate yourself through this material that you choose. So therefore, to me, I'm less interested in the objects. I'm, I love the process. I am totally 100% a process maker. And for me, a good professional artist has nothing to do with exercising good art products. It's okay if they come now and then, but to me, being a good professional artist is to be a good professional in understanding your own process. When you understand your process, when you love your process, you also never enter blackout or empty spaces because it's just a part of the process. And empty spaces or writing blocks or art blocks occur when your ambitions and where you are at the current moment doesn't sink. And so you sort of have a gravity issue more than you have block. So for me, it's like observing the energy in which you're working. That's the shit. I mean, this I would get up for every morning. It's inspiring. I wondered, you mentioned earlier about the value that art has in communicating ideas and creating dialogue. Was it 
then frustrating for you if you felt that the message wasn't necessarily received at the Biennale, for example, and, and people didn't quite embrace it? Or is even a negative reaction something that you can take heart from because it's still provoked? Um, I think I had a feeling it would be a problematic project. I remember myself saying before, I don't know how this would float or sink, but nevertheless, I was not ready that it would be so harshly or would impose so much aggression. I, I completely was not ready. And I also didn't understand it in the beginning. I didn't, it didn't sink in. It was really not until I arrived back in Denmark, like a few days after the opening, and I woke up in my bed in the morning And I was like, the girls were out and Charlie was out. I was alone and I was like, I felt as alone as I've never felt alone before. I mean, really, like completely left in a very existential way. I still remember lying in bed. The loneliness was so much like physical. And I remember lying and trying to understand. I've never had this feeling before. And I was like, who, if I would have been religious in a classical sense, the feeling I have inside would be similar to that my God have left me, mm. like really left. And suddenly I was like, wow, of course it was the feeling of being unheard or not understood. And I was like just observing this feeling in my body as sort of like a fog moving around. And I got up and I went to the bathroom and looked out to the forest and I was like, if I should do it again, If I would have to, I would do it one more time, exactly the same, because it was so important to me. And because I allowed for this process throughout the darkness to let my intuition drive, that intuition would be the driver and the guide through this whole sort of like creation of the pavilion. And this is what you do when you work in darkness. You can only follow your intuition because you can't see, you can't hear, you can't, I mean, you can hear, but you have no, your, your senses are overly alert and you really have to navigate from other areas of your consciousness and after that it was like it was very interesting I mean it was like either there would be no reaction or the reaction the words was very harsh I and mean, he's like how can you do it and it's like why can't you just put up pictures we like your pictures but this you know and I was like it's like you disappointed the whole Danish art scene I'm like that's quite something <laughs> Did you wear that as a badge of honor? I was, I don't know if I would, I mean, I think vanity is still around somewhere, you know, but I would be like, um, I was mourning that the dialogue was lacking, you know, that is like the critique was very superficial. And for me, it was sort of like, there was something that was so essential in this talk that it not at all was addressed. I mean, not even between my closest friends. And I was like, maybe the world was not really ready. I mean, what I did personally, I made bonfires that were so big. They were like 10 meters high. Every day I was making huge bonfire out of frustration and anger, like physical fires. And I sort of like, I just burned my anger and frustration and let it go into the forest. And that was quite helpful. But on the other hand, where we are today, I can see how difficult it is to take in. I mean, also the talks that I've had since then, I mean, now I modified the influenza exhibition into Charlottenburg, which was called Renaissance of the Night. 
And I modified that again into a show in Zurich, which was called X-Cave. And how were they received? Um, better, but they were also more, there was more material. It was more conventional, classical exhibitions with objects that people could look at. I mean, to me, the triology of the three exhibitions was really sort of like the process through the darkness. The first is the shock, like your family is dead or you lose your job or your wife just left you or, you know, like the freezing shock where you like, you don't know where to turn to and you're just full of despair. And then the show for Charlottenburg was therapeutically walking, like taking people by the hands and like pulling them gently through the darkness and allowing them to look at works that was in too dark a space and be intimate with the darkness. And that was, of course, more well-perceived because people could, it was more, tolerable to be sort of like led through the darkness and just getting the shock of sort of like yourself and your restlessness and your anger um and the ex-cave in Zurich was sort of like taking the hand and leading it out through the darkness so it was really sort of like a trauma process in a way and of course the first one was hated nobody loves a shock nobody loves when the carpet is pulled away nobody likes to be left alone with their own irritation it was mean of me but it was necessary why do you think darkness is such a taboo in the west we have no culture i think historically speaking 35000 years ago our culture was the culture around darkness because we didn't have the infrastructure we were like cave people we were sitting only had the moon as our lighting source during the night. And it's like around us was the darkness and we made bonfire. And when you sit around this fire, you become very alert. So the moon became the goddess. It, the moon is feminine. It was a feminine culture at that time. Virtuing the feminine circular understanding of our world, which was to a certain extent more peaceful. Not that they could not kill, but it's like they killed for a purpose, not just to slaughter and then the world changes. I mean, I think the world goes through phases. And then down from the mountains came the sun warriors, and they were masculine. And they wanted to celebrate the sun, not the feminine moon, the masculine sun. And they were like making territories. And they were like, this is your country. This is my country. And they put a god in. And there were not many gods. There were one god, and he was masculine, or he was male. And suddenly we entered a time on era that was very very dynamic which also led us to where we are today like the whole christianity the whole religion the separation the industrialization the disrespectfulness of surroundings this era is so intense now that everything if you look around has to do with trespassing of borders or protection of borders it's like refugees that is moving power structures from east to west that is moving, money that is degenerating or falling apart, like nations. And I mean, basically everywhere you look around, we are like leaves falling off the tree in the fall. And it's so hard to accept this loosening up. Therefore, I think today, art and artistic practice and the notion of creation and creativity is more important now than ever before. Ever, ever, ever. And the more we can have a profound understanding of what happens in the creative process, in the genesis, the better equipped we are to 
maneuver in this very chaotic caterpillar cocoon soup that we are entering right now. And uh, I can see for myself that however much I really, really love to produce, I love to make art. I say, I'm addicted to the energy of transformation from a very sensitive sensibility that is hardly any thought yet. And then it becomes sort of like an intuition and then it gets words or sentences and it becomes a thought and then the thought becomes a material that then becomes a form that then plops into artwork and I love this process and it's like this is what nurtures me and what makes me high since I was a little girl I knew that what really really matters was energy we had a materialistic world we had to go to school we had to learn we had to fit in we had to conform to the norm etc etc but what really really mattered was energy behind it but because I was such a weird little girl that didn't want to conform, I was like, okay, wow, I need to learn to conform because otherwise I'm just a widow. No, not a widow, a cuckoo. And so I, I learned the conventional way of communicating and understanding and assimilating to the world. And meanwhile, I always knew, ah, the energy. The energy side, I feel really, this is my world, I feel really comfortable, but when I'm here today, sitting in your studio, it's like, I feel so ashamed and I feel so lazy because I've not been doing my job probably. I've been really good at acknowledging the energy and allowing it to smooth into the materialistic world, which I've been enjoying and it's comfortable. But at this point in our world, it's not enough just to have the acknowledgement of energy and materialistic world. We have to know to control the energy before it becomes materialistic because we need to be able to guide it the right direction. Until now, I've been acknowledging the energy and said, okay, I trust energy. Energy will always seek a form. Bingo. Then I polished the form a little bit and served it to you. But now I have to be much more intelligent and wise and clever and also scientific almost on how energy works in order not to allow it itself to take the form or for other people to form it, but to be a part of the creator of which way it goes. Because right now, in our world today, we can have the possibility to make a world that is more clever, more tolerant, freer, much more creative. We can choose to have a world where we protect the planet as it needs right now, like really, really dramatically. Or we can choose to nurse a world where we allow other people to decide and will become a dictatorship of technologies and uh, shopping mechanisms and money matters that is out of our hands. And I know very well which world I would like to take part of. Actually, in a way, I feel that my apprenticeship as an artist is over now. Now I have to start up as an adult and mature and responsible artist to sort of make sure that the energy gets into the right channels. It's... Um very inspiring to hear it framed in that way. You mentioned that at school you felt like you had to conform. And I know that you, in grade nine or 10, were told that you weren't fit for academia and you should probably consider a career as a hairdresser. If you take us back to that time, how did you then find art as a potential way of expressing yourself? Not, not, not. There was no art in my life. I mean, there was no art in my family. It was really highly academic. And 
it was not even a, it was like a little different orbit system. So I was just sort of like going through life and with the means that I could, escaping as much as I could in order to stay in my own world and adapting so I didn't have to defend my own world because that's also difficult when you don't have a language for it. And then by chance, I ended up at the school as we do in Denmark, sort of like an educational system, a short educational system. And I ended up in an art school of three months. And when I got there, I was like, there you are. I mean, there you are. I've never met anyone who was like me before. I was like, finally, my goodness, I thought I was completely alone in the whole world, but here is my friends, you know. They were like as fucked up and like crumpled paper with like shadows and unstraight, you know. It's like messy or peculiar or... And and I knew that my life was hanging out with these friends. And these friends wanted to go to the academy. I was like, okay, fuck, I'm going to the academy because that's my friends. It's like, and first year I didn't get in, the second year I got in. And then I was like, wow, I've made art for so short time that it's like, it's ridiculous. And all these people have really been rehearsing. I mean, because they had ideas of artists and, and I was like, I really have to act really fast. I have to learn really fast in order to keep up because I didn't have any artistic practice I didn't have done the mistakes you know so I was like okay fuck I'm gonna allow myself all the mistakes I possibly can get at as soon as I see a possible for a mistake I'll do it (laughs) because then in my inner mind I had this picture of a cup of cappuccino as a creative process and it's like there's a little bit of chocolate on the top and then there's a huge layer of foam and then Deep down, there was a little bit of coffee, like really black and thick. And I was like, I have to get through the chocolate and the foam, which is all the projections and all the mimicking art and the horrible pain about my family and my this and my that and the system and everyone else's fault and guilt of how it's like, why I'm not where I am. It's like, I have to get through all this patheticness in order to get to know my own core. And for this, I have to allow failure, as many failures as possible. So... Basically, I was doing failures for 10 years, and I made this system that every time I did a really bad artwork, I was like, thank you, when there's one less to do. (laughs) You genuinely felt that way? Yes. And I was like carrying all this concrete and material up on fifth floor and producing all these bad artworks, and I was like, ah, missed, bad again, and I carried it all down to the trash bin, and it carried new material up. (laughs) So it was very sort of like a physical learning, but I also felt I had to really run fast because if I need to talk to my peers, I had to run faster because they have always been doing failures for eight years. And I think actually, I was just thinking about it last night. I think actually I feel I'm at the same state now again, just on an energetic field, on an energetic level, where I'm like, I knew all along that the energy was the primer creator of our world, but I just paid it lazy attention and now I really have to work hard to understand how it works the mechanism and the law of energy in order for me to be able to go to the next step of the art production that I really want to that I find necessary because it always have to do with an inner necessity if you don't have the inner necessity it's just gimmick it's just gestures and I think We don't have time for gestures now. We're in an urgent point 
in our world, which is fantastic. It's a very, 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 very important time. And I think that there's massive learning in that process we are in. So how, on a practical level, how do you best find yourself getting in tune with the energy and opening yourself up to be guided by the energy? I think I've always been. I mean, for many, many years when people say, oh, how do you get inspired? It's the most frequently asked question to an artist. I would normally say I, my main task is to wash my inner mirror in the morning. So I'm like prepared for whatever. Not to go to the studio with too many ideas about how the day would run. And of course, you engage in a system. So of course, I know I have to do this and that and that. But still to keep sort of a part of your mindset open. I mean, the last 10 years I spent on meditation every morning. It was a part of my getting ready to work, cleaning my mirror. But I would say my meditation practice have sort of extended itself out through the day. So it's like, I mean, I sit down for an hour and then I have certain sort of like emptiness and then you enter your world and then you fill it up again. And then you start all over the next day. You empty yourself out and then the minute you get into the working day, you fill each other up with phone calls and to-dos and irritations. and But I think it's more mindset. It's really more mindset. It's like, and the mindset comes with also doing slower, filling less up. Mm-hmm. I mean, cutting out the whole exhibition practice, which is a high demand organization, production, logistics, etc. And I know it's not forever, but I need to unlearn an efficiency that I've been very skilled in. And that's very difficult to unlearn. It's very difficult to unlearn a materialistic mindset. And I'm not talking about going out and buying new ladybag, but to look at the world from a materialistic point of view, looking at this blue table standing here in front of me as a physical table, instead of just saying, ah, it's just a materialization of particles that technically, if I could convince myself, I would put my hand through and it would be untouched and my hand would be untouched. As we talked about before with the epigenetics and the genetics, it's like saying my whole life I've been trained that the world is physical and that a truck can hit me harder than your thought. But in reality, it's a lie. I have to untrain my mind and almost like a hypnotic way of mindsetting to say, but it's just an illusion that a truck hits me harder. Because in the real reality, the truck is just particles and the truck is just vibrations. And the thought that you project on me right now is equally vibrations. So it's a mindset. It's like everything is really a mindset. I know that because I was so unskilled in life. I was so unskilled. I didn't go to school. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't conform. And I didn't do this and I didn't do that. And at some point in an age of 30, I was like, wow, it's really amazing. It's like being so unskilled as a character and yet so successful. How is that? How is that? Wow, I guess it doesn't need a lot of intelligence to cope with life. But it's not that. That that is that I have an extremely good imagination and I can imagine my life and I can imagine situation. And I have no fear. I have very little fear. And I definitely are very comfortable with being a failure. And so... It doesn't get to me. I don't have the fear of presentation. Also, when Venice goes wrong, I'm like, oh, that's a pity for them. Hmm. Because 
it's actually quite important. But my life moves on. Before, my energy was so keen on adapting to the world and making fine artworks and producing while still loving the process more. It was very important for me to get out where I could be heard. And now I'm like, there's something that is more interesting or more important than just me. The world is in a place right now where it needs my energy. might not need my artwork. I would still make them because I cannot stop it. It's my life. I don't know what else to do. But it needs my understanding on a different level. And I will do my best to learn this level because if I don't learn this level, I would feel myself as a poorer artist. If we take a step back to your early work, Christina, where you were working with collage, mm. you've said that that was a way of dismantling structures and repurposing them in a way that made sense, a way of dealing with your anger. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about how you landed on collage and what interested you the most about that particular medium? Um, yeah, I started the academy. Before I entered the academy, I was doing sort of something that could look like sculptures. It was definitely three-dimensional in some way. Then I spent a while in the Himalayas and in Tibet, not because I had a meditative practice, but I had a boyfriend that had a meditative practice, and he wanted to go into these monasteries, but he didn't want to go alone. So I was like, okay, I'll go with you for three months, but I just started art school, and I really want to get back there and get to know my new friends. So I was like, I'll... Spend three months with you, and then I go back, and you can stay whatever you want. And I was there, not meditating, but living in the monastery, or just like outskirts of the monastery, and was like, hmm, I really should start my art school. And, and I found out that the local women were excellent in crafts, and I was excellently bad in crafts. So I was like, <laughs> and it was a way for me to communicate with them. So I make drawings on papers and ask them to knit sculptures, and so things, and I'm a child of the 70s, so it's like, for me, growing up, aesthetic was like abandoned. There was no glitter, there was no glam, there was nothing. Taste was like disregarded because clothes was functional. So I suddenly met this beauty of India and fabrics, and I was like, oh my God, how can the poorest farmer woman sit with a sari that is so golden and bright and look so rich? just because she wears pride in her garment. And I was like, that's really power. So I started to buy some of these beautiful materials and sew them together and make statements. And I really spent this like monastery life of sort of making banners, like my freedom contradicts your freedom. Or it's like very sort of like youth room sort of statements, but with this beautiful fabric. And I was like, that's so cool. You can just buy fabric everywhere. You can make three meters times six meters banners and you can wrap it up in a bag and go and you can expand it again and it, the value of the material is nothing but it's the value that we add to it and I was like completely rambling with my new power you know I felt I had the power and then when I got home I was like doing these banners and then I started to sort of like paste and crop I mean I've always been quite curious on the world and read a lot of newspapers until a few years back when I stopped but I did have anger in me. I mean, maybe pulled from the childhood where I felt not understood or that I had a different world that was not regarded and I had to conform. But also I brought it into this pre 
adult life where I was like, fuck, they're just lying to us. It's like everything that is in the newspaper is just a convenient lie. I mean, it's like they want to conform us. Like when you had a picture from a war zone or from a issue somewhere in the world, I was like, what's next to the picture or behind the picture? And I was out of frustration starting to take photocopies and cut pictures up and put them together and shift the proportions and move things around for me to feel ease. And that really helped me a lot. And I actually think this was my schooling. I mean, the school was not the elementary school with math and Danish or physics, but it was this notion of cropping and pasting and understanding proportions and what proportions meant and what emptiness and filling and light and dark and this whole dance of and this is probably where I am still it's like dance of energy it's like what do you leave open what is the absence can be as presence as something present can be absent this notion of very literal collage idea you know that you cut a dog out of a picture but it's still there it's just it's absence and it was Fantastic for failures because it just required a photocopy machine. It was dirt cheap. I could do something. It would be bad. I would throw it away, make something new. I had to find this media that I could learn through without feeling that I got emptied out my student money every time I had to exercise something. So on many levels, it was appropriate. I loved that you could exactly give it value without it having a value from the beginning. Like if I felt if I would be a painter, I would go and buy the expensive paint and I would paint myself into a tradition that I could not, it was too overwhelming. Hmm. And I was not interested in the hierarchy of the painting tradition. I've never been interested in the hierarchies per se, but I was interested in the structures. So it was a very clever and easy way into the art scene, learning, exercising what I need to learn and still sort of finding my own space. You have said on that note that you feel that your craftsmanship can never live up to what your expectations are on a cerebral level or a creative level. Is that frustrating? Yeah, but I also learned to love it. I mean, if I need good craftsmanship, I will have to pay somebody to do it. And I accepted that. And it's also a good excuse to work with people because I do like to work with people and I like people to add to my work because I think my force is that I have an exquisite sensibility and I have too many ideas. My force and my hindrance is that I'm restless. So it's like I work quite fast when I work. And it's really so joyful to work with people who know they can administer a craft or a technique which I know that I would spend my whole life on doing. And I say, I'm so curious on so many techniques that I would never get to do my art. I would never get to do the content because I would dwell too much in the technique world. So for me, it's really, it's a choice of necessity. I'm mostly curious on the dynamic art more than the technical equipment or the technical skills. So yeah, it is frustrating because I need to call someone when I really need to do it, but maybe that's okay. Is it also an opportunity to exercise releasing control to a certain extent? Because it is that paradox that you talk about the beauty in being vulnerable, in allowing yourself to release control. But on the flip side, we have this picture of artists as control freaks. Yeah, it's a good observation. 
I am also a control freak. Honestly, I'm still working with it. Or I'm every day working with it. I think I have the best organizational talent, which is not true. It's just a horrible self-image. But it's like, I do like control. And I also like when I have the decisive end veto. But when that is said, I really, really enjoy to get inspired. And I really enjoy to work with people. And I really enjoy so much other people's talents that I'm like, it feeds back to my own creativity to see somebody really, really good at what they're doing and enjoying to be good at it. And I have the, not at least the patience because that's my very weak point. That is my patience run out very fast. So I learn patience from observing other people's love with their own sort of working process, like physical working process. And I really enjoy swapping between being the mastermind artist and the humble apprentice. And I have no problem swapping between these, knowing that I am the center of the final result. So, of course, it's my responsibility. And that comes back to the controlling part again. So it, I, I laugh and I have it's playful to have this sort of working rhythm. And I do think that I'll find it almost boring if it, everything came from me. Reflecting on your time in Berlin... What do you feel you learnt both as an artist and as a person through that experience? Um, I came to Berlin via New York and New York was really sort of like me raw eating the world. I mean, I was like everywhere. I had my bike. I was biking north to south and east to west and to Brooklyn and to Long Island. And so I was really just all over the place. In terms of getting exposure to other art? No, yeah, just seeing, meeting people. I didn't do much. I was, it was not self-exposure. It was more sort of like hunger mm. of human beings, of mindsets, of fun, of parties and drinks and art and how this weird art industry was working. And I, I was a farmer girl, you know. I was like, wow, this is a planet, what? And then I moved to Berlin and I was a little bit more mature and I started actually there to do my art practice, still making failures. But I think that I came there with a group of friends and very easy I got sort of into the whole sort of like Berlin scene. I didn't love Berlin in the beginning. I, I mean, many people come to Berlin because they love, 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 love. I did not. I came from New York and I was like, what kind of arrogant, self-sufficient, mumbling, sour place is this? <laughs> You know, it was also in 2001 and everything was like gray or brown and people were sitting up against the walls in all corners drinking beers and like mocking and complaining and would be like, meh, 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 meh. I came from New York and they were like looking at me, being their friend, going like, why the fuck do you look so happy? And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, come on. But um, I'm a morning person and they were like getting up at four o'clock in the afternoon and they were only starting their life at 10 when I was like falling over of tiredness. It was an interesting entrance. And I tried to leave Berlin because I was like, this is too sour for me. It's like, has too much attitude. I really didn't like the art scene. It was too little fun. But then I went to Los Angeles for half a year and I was like, I really missed what I had in Berlin. And I was like, what is it? What is it? And suddenly I realized, wow, it's the time and space. In Berlin, particularly at that time, being a young artist with vulnerable economy is like you had all the time and all the space possibly imagine. And it's such a luxury. And I was like, fuck, 
this I want to move back for because this is really what gives you a freedom, the real freedom, the freedom that I was always looking for. So I moved back and then I started to love Berlin. And I, of course, had sort of like my gallery and my art crowd and I did sort of like the normal business, but I bought an apartment before people started to buy in a conventional house. And the house in which I bought the apartment was on under the roof was a whole new set of apartments with people and they were all doctors. And it was a wonderful house, very good house dynamic. And all the doctors was like what they call in German Allgemeine Arzte, which is a normal practitioner, but one had a speciality in angels, the other one as a homeopath, the other one was like this and that. And somehow my whole Berlin life became very spiritual. I mean, mm. without me asking or looking for it or searching, it sort of became my spiritual education because then my everyday was really art and art practice and art friends, but really sort of like the subcurrent was really spiritual development. It's like from practical matters, like from then I got my children. By chance, the patrician, she was like, also giving homeopathics. And I was like trying to understand what is this and why does how does this work? And of course, this is on energy level. And I got a spiritual helper. I had like a communication with somebody who could help me to see all the invisibilities that really were sort of like defining my life out of curiosity, out of like, when I do this, why does this happen? It's like really sort of investigative. And it is so with Berlin that it is a very wounded city. It is a war city. It has lots of suffering. And people like me came to Berlin the most full of holes, full of suffering, full of like unreleased pain. And it feels almost like, do you know these like playful balls with lots of holes in them? They can jump very much. And I felt like I came to Berlin full of holes. And as I was rolling through the city for these 15 years, all the holes were mended and really when the last hole was stuffed, I was like, okay, now I'm restless. I, I did my Berlin. But I learned so much. I came there as a frustrated, restless teenager, and I sort of became a molded person. And I also got my roots. And I was like, in order for my roots to go really in ground, I need to relocate and get new earth because it's too much concrete here. There's too much restlessness. There's too much pain. That is not my pain anymore. It was my pain the notion of feeling homeless or unloved or unease and all this, but through sort of like my personal work and development and my children, I became whole, not complete, but the intermediate state of wholeness. And then I had to start over again in a new place. So I feel a tremendous love for Berlin. I feel a tremendous longing. And it's like, I'm in pain almost every day in the countryside because I miss Berlin, but I miss the Berlin that I grew up in. When I go back, I still love Berlin and I still love my friends and I'm still ecstatic about the connections, but I'm mourning a learning process that is, was really, really important and also a time which was really important for a huge group of friends, but also a time that was massively important for Berlin as a city because it was so raw when we started. And I only started in 2001. I mean, prior to that, there was 10 years of even more sort of like roughness and crudeness. And Berlin is a Scorpio city. So it's like, it has like the sting of 
sexuality and anger and resentment and suffering and and it's like it's a very dynamic place and it's also a place that attracts a lot of people with the same qualities or challenges and that is highly inspiring it's like mourning something that you still have but you don't have mm. in a way and that's my sensibility for berlin When you returned to Denmark, did you feel like an outsider in terms of the Danish art scene? No, not in terms of the Danish art scene. In a way, I feel constantly connected with the Danish art scene. I mean, I feel connected. I don't know if they feel connected <laughs> to me. But, I mean, I, there's a lot of young artists, of course, generations I don't know. But the connection to the Danish art scene have never went missing, have never been cut The connection to the German art scene has never been cut. The connection to the New York art scene was cut like this, which we'll see. I'm, I'm curious. I really miss New York somehow. It's not a time right now, but the Danish art scene is very, very different. I mean, we we're tribal. We're a tribe nation, and we move in hordes. And we have, I mean, when I was a kid, it was like Sibochrome photography with like a slick coolness and Scandinavian touch and then it went into something else and then it went into something else I don't know exactly where it is right now but it is we're sort of like this cloud that sticks together and take form and metamorph and go into a new form and that has a very nice homey feeling it might not be the most challenging art place and I read a really nice article a while back actually from a Danish Right, and now I I forgot her name. I actually I didn't mark myself her name, which I I'm sorry about. But she's like the problem with the Danish art scene is that we don't have as much a stake as, for example, England, America, or Germany, where you have huge cultural differences. Denmark, we reduce art to culture, and we put contemporary art or a concert or a football match or like a ballet in the Royal Garden on the same sort of like level of culture. And that means that culture for us is harmonious. It connects us. It puts us together. It gathers us as human, like as a group. Whereas art in other places, in Germany and US and England, is a separator. Like real art is a separator, not a collector. Culture is a collector, but real art is putting tension, it creates tension, it makes people argue, it makes people disagree, it makes people feel hurt. Because art is free and it can talk in a clearer way than politics can, because it's not politics. But we have difficulties understanding that in Denmark, because we are very consensus-seeking. And I think that makes it a really nice playground, it's a nice education ground for young artists, and it's a very nice family feeling. I know that In order for me to keep attention and curiosity, I like to have a little bit more friction because friction also makes people move. And friction, sometimes it's fun, but sometimes it hurts. And sometimes you get into arguments. And I think for me, it's okay. It's okay not to please everyone. And it's also okay to have a real disagreement. It's difficult when you're in a small place because you're going to meet each other two days later, to the next opening. But I think that from being abroad, 
for fairly amount of years is like I learned not to take things so personal. The fact that many, many people got so upset and really didn't like my contribution to the Venice, I don't take it personal. But I would have loved that people would come and discuss it with me because then I would have a chance to say, hey, I sacrificed this opportunity because it's something that I really, really am serious about and I find it really, really important and I'm ready to do it one more time because I still find it important and because I think we still haven't talked enough about it. But that eagerness to confront or to understand or that curiosity to get under the surface and to challenge ourselves is not in our culture. And I find that a pity. If somebody wants to have this argument, I'm here. <laughs> but I would not, I mean, my pride would hold me back from going out and, and dissing people, you know. So it's like, I'm, I'm open. Well, I think that's a, it's as good a way to finish as uh, I could hope for, that the dialogue would continue. I'm sure it will with your art. And Christina, thank you for sharing your reflections. It's just been a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram, and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.